Today's episode is brought to you by Ozark Christian College. How do you know if the Master of Arts in Biblical Ministry at Ozark Christian College is right for you? The MA in Biblical Ministry was created to build a solid biblical foundation, helping you dive deep into the text and offering effective ministry strategies to prepare you for whatever calling God has on your life. This degree is affordable and highly flexible. You'll experience a transformational education community unhindered by distance. So what's your next step? Well, it's simple. Learn more and apply for free at occ.edu masters. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Disciple Makers Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Stovall, and today's episode features Freedom in Christ Ministries, which was founded in 1989 by our speaker today, Dr. Neil Anderson. Whether or not you've read his best-selling books, Victory Over the Darkness or Bondage Breaker, you're definitely going to get something out of this episode. There's some fascinating stuff in here. Neil just has a wealth of knowledge about the spiritual world, and I absolutely love hearing him every time he speaks. This was Freedom in Christ's first track session from last year's forum, so let's go ahead and jump in and hear from Dr. Anderson. Here we go. I was sitting here just thinking a minute ago, I said, you're looking at an ex-aerospace engineer. I was so left-brained at one time, my head tilted on one side. And, uh, <clears throat> and uh, I grew up in a natural world, believing there's a natural answer for everything, natural explanation. Uh, so the paradigm shifts that I personally have gone through over the years, you know, are just absolutely amazing, <clears throat> to be honest with you. I mean, I, I, I'm sitting here wondering what I'm going to present today and tomorrow. Had I heard it 40 years ago, how I'd respond to it, <laughs> you know, because unless you personally have gone through some paradigm shift that you're not growing, if you're not r- r- moving, some stuff that's, that's kind of standard Christianity may sound like, you know, Hocus pocus to you. And uh, so let's see if we can work our way through this process. But uh, really talking initially about worldview, because I want to I want to start from the much, much bigger picture and then work it down to the individual, how we can sit down and help one another. But if you don't have the big picture, it's like going to church and handed one piece of a 10,000 piece puzzle and you're trying to put the puzzle together and you don't know what the box top looks like. That's where a lot of people are at. You get one nice sermon, and how does it fit in with the whole? And I don't know why God has chosen me to bring something like this forward, but uh, from the very beginning of my own professional experience, I've always been a systems person. I know people don't always think that way, but but I do. I mean, I, I, I want to see how it fits in together. I want to see how the whole picture comes together. Uh, for instance, I presented in September to the American Association of Christian Counseling. And the last uh, three that I've gone to, I've either had the biggest or the second biggest workshop, 700 plus people. I'm a pastor, I'm not a professional counselor. I've taken one class on psychology, one class on evangelism, <laughs> And uh, one class on uh, discipleship. But that's what I've taught over the years. And, uh, but I've also taught and believe more strongly now, I think, than I ever did in, in the beginning. That if you're a good discipler, you're a good counselor. And if you're a good counselor, you're a good discipler. I believe the roles are the same. I, I, don't, I think we have dramatically separated them. Uh, two sides of the campus oftentimes don't talk to each other. Uh, it's really frustrating to me. Uh, so somehow in the process of working with people, if you aren't helping them get in touch with some of their, you know, remote feelings and, and struggles in their life, you're dead in the water. First person I tried to counsel, I, I set up this whole program at a big college ministry and uh, I chose very carefully one-on-one type of things. We were going to meet for six months and then double and double and that was my concept, you know. So the guy that I took was one of the older men in our college department. He's 26. Got absolutely nowhere. <laughs> and I knew it. I mean, I didn't keep 
adding lesson upon lesson because I knew we weren't connecting, but we'd meet, have a nice chat and whatever else. Finally, I gave up. And uh, not too long after that, I was called to a senior pastor role and uh, the guy came to see me. And it turned out all during that time I was trying to disciple him, he'd been sleeping with all the co-eds at City College. Now, you think you can disciple that guy without resolving that issue in his life? There ain't no way. And uh, so that's kind of set a precedent to me. I said, how do we get people out of their junk so they can counsel? How do we get them established free in Christ? I wanted to give you solid meat, but I couldn't. And uh, for you're unable, that's what New American Standard said, unable to receive it, not unwilling. You got people sitting in your church and what you're sharing is going right over their head. They're willing, they're coming to church, but they aren't growing. Do I have to convince anybody of that? Do you think the church in general has been growing over the last 20 years in this country? I think if anything, it's just the opposite. I think we regressed. It isn't because there isn't good teaching out there. That's not the problem, I don't think. But it says, I wanted to give you Solomon, but I couldn't because of the quarrels and conflicts that exist amongst you. Now, just a little simple logic says, if you don't have some means to resolve those issues, what you're teaching is going right over their head. You don't believe me? Give an exam next Sunday of your message that you gave the Sunday before. That'll be the most embarrassing thing you'll ever do in your life. <laughs> it, uh, and I've just seen it, people, year after year, you know. And I said, the best thing you'll ever have in your church are mature saints, you know, who have matured over the years. They've learned things you haven't learned yet. Tried to tell the young pastors going to ministry, don't alienate them. That's the strength of your church. But the greatest liability you have is saints that got old and didn't mature. All they do is censor. You can't do that around here, young man. We've never done it that way before. And, uh, and you'll struggle, 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 and hopefully mature a little bit and go on to another church. But it's, uh, <clears throat> it's the, uh, but, but this worldview, I, we just have to start and see if we can get a bigger picture, which I frankly had totally lacked. Can I be honest with you folks? If you were raised in the United States where everything that you've been taught is based on a secular basis, say you didn't go to some Christian school or something like that, what is your worldview? It's radically different than the African or the South American or the Indian or the Chinese. I promise you it is. And you almost have to get out of this culture to recognize that. That their perception is just as legitimate as yours, albeit different. I used to do premarital counseling and I'd hold up my hand and I said, describe what you see to one of them. And they'd say, four fingers and a thumb. I said, details. And they'd say, fingernails. Wait a minute. <laughs> There's no fingernails on this hand. And they look at me like, what? Are you calling me stupid? You think I can't see? There are no fingernails in this hand. From my perspective right now, there are no fingernails on this hand. You know, the people I feel the sorriest for, there are no fingernails on this hand. There are no fingernails in this hand. There are no fingernails. <laughs> Life keeps changing around them, and they will not acknowledge the fact <laughs> that there's a reality out there that they just are not aware of and never been introduced to before. Or it's been explained in a different way. And I'm gonna give you some major illustrations of that. And over the years, if, you're, if, you're not, if your worldview isn't changing, you're not growing. PJ studies years ago in cognitive development, he said, talked about formal operations. They don't even begin until you're 12. But he said, if you are not changing your schema, which I would translate as worldview. If, if it's not changing, you're not growing. And uh, so I, I have to look back and, you know, gaining the experience of having been in many, many countries around the world and, and, and to talk to those people and, and gain their perspective and hear what they're doing and seeing. It's been nothing but an enriching experience for me. And, and personally, you know, I, my first experience as a, you know, believer, professor, I suppose, the time was kind of classic evangelical. And, uh, but over the last uh, 40, 30, 40 years or so, uh, half the churches that have invited me have been Pentecostal, charismatic, um, around the world. Uh, you say, how do you do that? I said, well, I preach Christ and Him crucified. <laughs> and, uh, 
But if you're just a, an evangelical, you say, what, do, what kind of a church does the Assembly of God have? I, I'll almost promise you, if you haven't had the experience, if I blindfolded you, you couldn't see the sign out front, you couldn't tell the difference. Not in this country, hardly. And uh, really? <laughs> now, if I took you to an Orthodox church, you'd see a difference. And, uh, but let's look back for a moment and, uh, and just kind of take a, a bigger world view and try to gain God's perspective on the world that we're living in today. It may surprise you a little bit on certain matters, but uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And uh, the expanse is declaring the work of his hand. And you, you get this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. By the way, you ever ask, why does this say heavens and not heaven? But he created the heavens and the earth. Well, look at the heavens. He created a heavenly host. Scripture calls him Elohim. You thought, I thought that was God. Well, no, Elohim is spirits. Satan was an Elohim, so was God. Does that surprise you? Uh, probably does. Uh, by the way, if you want to read a fascinating book, uh, The Unseen Realm is one of the more fascinating books that you read in a long time, I promise you. You'll only read about 10, 20 pages a night. And uh, it's a Hebrew professor writing, and uh, I'm not saying I agree necessarily with him, but just read it, and it'll change your perspective on a lot of things, I almost promise you that. Uh, but <clears throat> in, in creating this, quote, heavenly host, which we know not too much about, but Scripture clearly teaches that it does exist. Satan's an Elohim. Did you know that? It's a spirit. All were good at one time. And, uh, and sometimes it's referring to the heavenly council or the host. And then you look at the universe when he created it. All of that is lifelike, devoid of life, and did not originate out of any pre-existing matter. And then you have the personal God who created the heavens and the earth. And uh, he's the mind behind the universe. And that part is eternal. Had no beginning, has no end. That's the nature of God. Well, <clears throat> being infinite, personal, mind behind the universe. And then one dinky little planet, planet Earth, uh, he created organic life. All destined to die, by the way. If you have a lawn, lawn or a tree, you know what I'm talking about. If it has some means to propagate itself, it's going to die. It's, it's the law of sin and death, essentially, is that everything, every living organism will eventually die, unless it has some means to propagate itself. And then he took a piece of clay and breathed into it the breath of life, and Adam became a living being. Now, what I didn't know many years ago was that being alive was two-dimensional. He was alive physically, but he was also alive spiritually. If he ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, on that day, he would surely die. He ate and he died. He didn't die physically, he died spiritually. To be physically alive means your soul is in union with your body. What happens if you die physically? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. To be alive means to be in union with, death, death is to separate from. That has profound implications we'll get to a little later. Uh, but spiritual life means your soul is in union with God. And uh, it's interesting because as soon as he sinned, he died spiritually. And what was the first emotion that he expressed? Why was he hiding from God? He was afraid. It's what I call a primordial fear. I believe that is the basis of all fear. But what was he afraid of? He was still in the garden. Couldn't blame mom and dad. There was no neurological problem here. that would require some kind of medication. There wasn't even any flesh patterns. If you think about it, what was he afraid of? Where did that fear come from? The absence of life. Hang on to that for a moment. Why is that the number one commandment in Scripture? Fear not. What's the number one mental health problem of the world? Anxiety disorders. People are frightened to death all over the world. That was, that was so prevalent in the early stages of creation that, you know, when death came, you know, 
the world became so corrupt by Genesis chapter 6, God was going to destroy it off. If it wasn't for Noah, you and I wouldn't even be here. And, uh, and, and, and all he saw was evil and wickedness. But if you go back and watch these programs on uh, science and that kind of stuff, and the, all the archaeologists, every one of them has some kind of a sacrificial system. You ever notice that? Every program that you hear, this is where they sacrifice their babies or animals or whatever else. They all knew somehow a sacrificial system had to come into play. Uh, but obviously, it was all you know, essentially from the enemy. Uh, so what I'm saying is, is that when, when you look at creation around us today and see the majesty of God, you know, I was an aerospace engineer back in the 60s, and uh, we had the guidance system for the lunar lander, and that stuff was really exciting in, in those days. And they developed the Hubble telescope. <laughs> now what you can see today, when, when the psalmist says, you know, the heavens and earth despair and show forth the glory of God, the expanse and work of his hand. All they could see was what they could see, our Milky Way and a few other things. Now we can peer off into mind-boggling stuff. You can't even, you ever lay in bed at night and say, there's got to be an end out there. But what's at the other end of it? <laughs> I mean, you, you can't wrap your mind around it. It's just amazing. And all of that to declare the works of God to, to the expanse, the work of his hand. Mind-boggling kind of stuff. And, um, but when you realize that, that creating the heavenly host and then the physical universe, you've got a two-dimensional world that we live in, a spiritual world and a natural world. And uh, this is in your handout here. When you uh, look at dimensions of reality, and, and you have to come to terms with the fact, folks, that the non-seen world is just as real as the chair you're sitting on. Paul says, that which you see is temporal is passing away. That which you don't see is eternal. And uh, that's hard to wrap our minds around that, just to begin with. But there is a spiritual world that exists out there. There's a natural world. And in that mix, there's two players. you got humanity and deity, or deities. Let me explain that if I can for a moment. If you look at the balance between all of this today, in terms of who is responsible for what in the world. I remember when Paul Hebert, who was at Taught of Trinity for years, came out with the book, The Excluded Middle, his um, diagram, explained it powerfully to us. He said, we in the West have what he called an excluded middle. That the, there was demons and God and spirits that are out there, and there's the natural world down here, and then you have this excluded middle in between that one doesn't impinge upon the other. That's not true, of course, but he said that's how Westerners look at this. He said that is not how the rest of the world looks at it. What's the number one spiritual orientation of the world? Organized religion? Absolutely not. Spiritism is. Any missiologist will tell you that. Just Brazil alone, 85% are practicing spiritists. Many will probably call themselves Catholics. All of Indonesia, Africa, Latin America, India, China, spiritism. And uh, it is the number one religious orientation of the world. Far outnumbers Christianity and Islam. And uh, unless you get outside of this world, you probably will not know that or hear that or be taught that. But trust me, that's true. I mean, it's absolutely true. And uh, so the question then re remains, how does that spiritual world impinge upon the natural world? Are they intermingled together? And if you're looking for a holistic answer, you have to take into account both realities. You can't just say, well, I'm, I'm a spiritual person. Well, I'm a natural person. It really doesn't exist. The old question is, was my problem spiritual or say, when is it psychological? In a real sense, that's a false dichotomy. It's never not spiritual. There is no time when God is not here. No time to take off the armor of God. That's just part of our spiritual reality. And people are tapping into that all the time. You used to be after late night television where you'd hear about all these psychics, you know. Now, 8 o'clock at night, I saw it. Started about six months ago. California psychics, a dollar uh, per minute or something like that. <laughs> and you'll hear testimonies that sound like they just went to church. I got new guidance in my life. I got direction for my life. And I got it from this psychic. And... That's going on all around you, and it has been all the time. 
More people read their astrological uh, sign every day than they read their Bible. And you can still have that in the airplane uh, magazine, but you can't have a Bible verse in it. So we are becoming more and more of the minority all the time, it seems like. Well, how does Scripture define this? And uh, let's just take a little look at that, if I can. When you look at the concept of heavens or heavenlies, uh, in a very simple sense, Scripture presents that as the abode of God. Our Father, who art in heaven. Then you have the stellar heavens. That embraces the universe. The heavens declare and show forth the glory of God. Referring to kind of the, the big umbrellas, the stellar aspect of the heavenlies. And then you have the atmospheric heavenlies, the spiritual realm surrounding the earth. It's all around you right now. Uh, we just, as natural people, aren't too in tune with that. But if you could show another way to illustrate that, if you ever get in an apartment building and you get in an elevator and your phone rang, do you ever wonder about that? Those walls, the elevator walls itself, but the building. What's coming through there to your cell phone? Well, how do you know it's breaking through there? Your phone rang. You can see the result. You know how many years humans lived and never knew that that was out there? And many still don't? Unless they have grandchildren who come along and tell them. <laughs> and here, mom, my dad, right here. Anyway, um, now, the heavenly realm, the spiritual realm that exists around us, how does Scripture embrace that? It's, uh, I look at the book of Ephesians, for instance. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. It, uh, it mentions the heavenlies, the spiritual realm, five times. Let me, let me just give you a rough overview so you know that this isn't just kind of coming from Neil's speculation or experience or something like that. Let me read you out of my Zondervan study Bible, the notes that they have for that particular concept as you go through Ephesians. It says, heavenly places occurs five times in Ephesians, emphasizing Paul's perception that in the exaltation of Christ, his resurrection and enthronement of God's right hand, and the Christ union with the exalted Christ Ultimate issues are involved. Ultimate issues are involved. Issues that pertain to the divine realm and that in the final analysis are worked out in and from that realm. I'll explain that a little bit more. At stake are God's eternal eschatological purpose and the titanic conflict between the God and the powerful spiritual forces arraigned against him. Let me stop here just for a second. You ever think of, when you read your Bible, essentially, what the theme of it is? Other than man's salvation, of course, is what do we all kind of gravitate to. But look at it in another way. Isn't it primarily a book defining the conflict between good and evil? Between the Christ and the Antichrist? Between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God? Between the false prophets and the true prophets? From beginning to end, the battle in the garden was spiritual. How does Revelation end? What's the end ages going to look like? Is it talking about uh, broken marriages? and not? No, actually the word sin isn't even mentioned in Revelation. It's all back to the Christ and Antichrist again. And we're in a battle whether we like it or not. Agreed? All right, so let's go on. The titanic conflict that exists. A purpose and a conflict that comes to focus in the history of redemption. Here Paul asserts that through their union, that's what salvation is by and large, is union with Christ. With the exalted Christ, Christians have already been made beneficiaries of every spiritual blessing that belongs to and comes from heavenly places. He proclaims Christ's exaltation to that realm and his elevation over all other powers and titles 
so that, the, that he rules over all for the sake of the church, according to uh, 2.6. Those who have been alive with Christ, what Adam and Eve lost in the fall was life. What did Jesus come to give us? Life. I'm the resurrection, the life. He who has the Son has the life. I don't want to be a total reductionist, but there's one thing about Christianity that's, that's true or false, black and white. He who has the Son has the life. He who doesn't, doesn't have the life. What Adam and Eve lost was life. I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live spiritually, even if he dies physically. So test yourself to see whether or not the Spirit of God is within you, lest you fail the test. That's the one test. <laughs> you either have Christ or you don't. You're either alive again or you're dead. And we're all born dead in our trespasses and sins. And um, he made us alive, sharing Christ's exaltation and throwing in heaven. What does it mean to be seated with Christ in the heavenlies? Hey, let me interrupt for just a second so that you can hear a brief message from our sponsors. Here they are. Wouldn't it be great if someone who knew what they were doing, who actually had proven results, would just share with you exactly how to make disciples? Hi, I'm Doug Burrier, a decision scientist and a real-life disciple maker. This year, I'm discipling six of my neighbors. That's crazy. They don't even go to our church. My friends and I made 1,392 disciples last year. So if you're tired of hearing the same old blog and keynote messages, droning on about the why, the need, and the theory, I want to invite you to hear the simple how-tos that have bunches of churches and hundreds of people making thousands of disciples all around the world. How to recruit, how to get them to love reading the Bible, how to transform them, how to run a meeting, like a real proven agenda, how to make individual disciples in a group setting, how to give people the wonderful, abundant life that God promised them. This is what I found in sustainable discipleship. It's not materials, it's not another program. It's a simple, repeatable set of how-tos. If you're ready for something proven, practical, and different, visit sustainable-discipleship.com. That's sustainable-discipleship.com. The team will be happy to share with you everything God shared with them. All right, let's get back to the episode. It isn't just your identity, Christ. It's your position in Christ. To be seated at the right hand of God, right hand of God is the throne of the universe, the authority of the, of the universe. And the, anyway, it goes on by gathering the Gentiles and Jews into one body of the Christ. God triumphantly displays his manifold wisdom to the rulers and authorities. I'll just stop here for a second. This is, according to Paul, the eternal purpose of God. I like purpose-driven life, but this is a bigger purpose. <laughs> eternal purpose of God to make his wisdom known through you and me. To who? Principalities and powers. To the demonic realm, essentially. In the heavenly realm, as a result, the spiritual struggle of the saints here and now is not so much against flesh and blood. Do you believe this or not? As against the great spiritual forces that wage war against God in heaven. So we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. I believe that. The question is, how does that work out in our daily experience? And, uh, and if you think this is just a natural struggle between natural people, that's the problem with psychology. People say, well, you know, I'm against psychology. You can't be against psychology. By definition, psychology is the study of the soul. I'm against a liberal psychology like I'm against a liberal theology. But there's only one authoritative book that tells you what the soul is and who we are, and that's the, the Word of God. You know, I've had the most interesting experience over these last few years in my own personal life. I was chairman of the Practical Theology Department at Telva School of Theology. My whole expertise was, was evangelism, discipleship. <clears throat> I come out of the era when Navigators was, was, was tops and uh, Campus Crusade for Christ was where people learned to evangelize. And, uh, and, they, and they were going great guns in those days and have struggled kind of ever since. And back in 1960, if you had a personal problem, where did you go? You probably went to your priest or your rabbi or your pastor. And, uh, and people who wanted to help other folks, they went off to seminary. And then ever since 62 and following, we've had a gradual drifting away 
Discipleship moved down and counseling went up. The problem with that is all the people in our system here of education, you've got to have a doctorate to teach on a graduate level. Where'd they get their degrees from? Christian schools? None. Zero. There were no Christian schools offering PsyDs. There's only a handful today. And all the professors have degrees from secular universities. Now, I'm not here to badmouth them. I build bridges. I've, I've presented at the American Association of Christian Counseling purely from a, frankly, Christian worldview perspective, trying to convince them that discipleship and uh, as well as repentance, faith in God is the answer. I'm going to try to prove that to you too, that we do actually have an answer and uh, in Christ that's far more effective than anything the world can, can offer. And uh, so I've, I've seen that what we lost, to be honest with you, in this last 50 years of my own personal ministry, we've kind of lost discipleship. In fact, you couldn't even publish a book with the word disciple in it. And, uh, and now people have become disillusioned with an awful lot of counseling, so now they've tried to rename that. I'm a life coach. I'm a mentor. I'm trying to get away from counseling. I said, what's the diff big difference between the two? A counselor can charge you $100 an hour. You don't get anything for discipling. It's kind of true, isn't it? How dare you charge me for discipling you? <laughs> then they'll go off to some secular person and pay them $100 an hour. You know, someday we're going to start to believe Psalm 1. How blessed are you if you don't sit in the seat of scholars or receive the counsel on the God? How blessed are you if you don't go to them? But I know one of the major churches in town right here, they farm it all out. All their counseling, farm it out. We'll help pay your way. <laughs> that angers me, to be honest with you. Come on, folks. We have an answer in Christ. And I'm going to do the best I can to hopefully prove that to you if you don't believe it to me. Uh, we're just seeing people come out of anxiety disorders and depression and chemical addiction, sexual addiction all over the world right now. And, uh, and no professionalism. I remember a dean... A Talbot that hired me years ago, he said, professionalism has killed the church. And I kind of half agree with that. I said, you need a professional. I said, you need Christ. Amen. And the means to get there is to repent and find your faith in God. Well, all of that to look at the heavenlies, and, and just from Paul's very perspective here, he's trying to open up our eyes that we would know that we could see. That's what he's praying for, isn't it? Ephesians chapter 1. That your eyes would be open, that you would know the hope of your calling, that, that far exceeds all principalities, powers, and dominions. You know, that God would open up our eyes to see that. And when we don't see it, why is it after all these years, every struggling Christian that I've had the privilege to work with had one thing in common? None of them knew who they were in Christ. None of them. Why not? The Holy Spirit is bearing witness with my spirit, I'm a child of God. Why weren't they sensing that? Why don't we know who we are? Daryl's going to share with that in the next session. And it is so foundational to any kind of counseling or discipling that if you bypass it, you're half dead in the water. You just took God out of it. Disciple Makers Podcast listeners, I want to invite you to the 2022 National Disciple Making Forum here in Nashville, Tennessee on October 5th and 6th. Jesus had a strategy, a plan, and a roadmap for making disciples. In other words, he was highly intentional. He guided, coached, and developed his disciples into full-on disciple makers, and by living out the Great Commission, they changed the entire world. We're constantly gaining new insight about intentional discipleship as we look closely at Jesus. And if we're thoughtful and prayerful, we can apply many of those same practices today. So head on over to discipleship.org to buy your tickets for the 2022 National Disciple Making Forum. I look forward to seeing you there. So let's look at the other issue here. 
Look at Satan. According to God, who is Satan? What's his role right now on planet Earth? You know, he's a ruler. Keep this in your back of your mind. The word there, ruler, is archon. Because that's going to make a lot more sense in a few minutes. But when you look at, at planet Earth and, and where we live right now, what do we know about planet Earth? We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, oh, do you believe that? I mean, we, we're, most of you are evangelicals here. We really hold to the authority of God's word. I believe that. Now, if you just started there from a starting point, and I'm going to go into this world and make disciples, and I'm going into that world where I wrestle not with flesh and blood, but principalities and powers, and the whole world right now lies in the power of the evil one. Let's start from there, for instance. Where do you think you'd end up? Different place than you are right now. I had to get there. It took me some time to get there to understand that. Or the serpent of old is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, when you look at spiritual warfare issues here, by and large, we kind of acknowledge that it's out there, but don't know quite how we interact with that. Uh, primarily, we would understand it as a struggle with temptation. After all, that's where it began in the garden, wasn't it? That the devil tempted Eve. And uh, when Jesus comes on the scene, what's the first thing that happened before he went into public ministry? Tempted by the devil. So how many have experienced some form of temptation this last week? And the rest are liars. <laughs> and uh, now here's, here's the interesting one, though. He deceives the whole world. And the whole world is condemned. That he accuses the brethren day and night. Now, how many of you have struggled with that? Real resistance there. And that's been true everywhere I've gone. They go, well, I'm not sure. If I ask the question this way, however, how many of you struggle with thoughts, I'm stupid, I'm dumb, I'm ugly, God doesn't love me, this is going to work? I tell you, one of the most helpful little passages you can read is Zechariah chapter 3 where the high priest is brought before God in, into the Holy of Holies in a filthy garment. Not good. You know the story, don't you? Uh, the great day of atonement, the high priest would go through all kinds of uh, process of ceremonial defilement or whatever else because you didn't want to go into the Holy of Holies representing the nation and, uh, in filthy garments. That's the last thing you wanted to do. In fact, it was so scary, they would try a rope to his foot and, uh, and bells to his garment. Why'd they do that? Well, the rest would sit outside and listen for the bells. I don't hear the bells. <laughs> Go check it out. You check it out. Pull the rope. That's what it was for, see? And uh, I ain't going in there before God in a filthy garment. And uh, so here, you see the courts of heaven. God the Father sitting there. And Satan is there accusing the brethren. So who's the prosecutor and the attorney? You want to sit before the courts of heaven? Who's the prosecutor? Satan is. Accuses the brethren day and night. Who's your defense attorney? Jesus. You going to lose this case, folks? He's standing there. Look at my hands. Look at my side. Look at my feet. And God reads Zechariah chapter 3. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Is this not a brand snatched from the flames of hell? Are you not children of God taken away? There is no condemnation for those who are Christ Jesus. Do you know how many people sitting in your church still feel condemned? Almost every one of them. Do you know that? And some of you just feel condemned all the time. Why is that? Now, there's the two big roles. He tempts you. Come on. Go ahead. Everybody's doing it. You'll have one. That's all right. Skip the diet. You'll come back tomorrow, whatever else. So you do it. What just happens then, folks? He changed his role, didn't he? He becomes the accuser. 
you sicko, aren't you ever going to get over this? And you cry, oh God, I'll never do it again until tomorrow. And you're in the sin, confess, sin, confess, sin, confess, sin, confess. And probably give up cycle. That's what's happening in our churches right now. What's wrong with that? You'll never get out of it, folks. If that's all you're doing is sinning, confessing, sinning, you'll never get out of it. You sin, confess, repent. Resist, stand firm, believe. We've left off repentance. Where is it? I'm not saying this superficially, folks. I was doing a doctor ministry class at Denver Seminary. Gave all these, you got to have five years of ministry experience and a master's of divinity. I gave these pastors a piece of paper. I got two questions for you. You gave a stirring message Sunday morning. God came forward. You called him to forward to repent. One, first question. What would they do? Second question, what should they do? Probably the most elemental thing in Christendom is repent. Jesus said, repent, believe the gospel. Surely you'd get some consistent answers, would you not? The most basic, elemental thing, really? Most of them got the first question right. They would probably confess their sins. But that's not repentance. And they're caught up in the sin, confess, sin, confess, sin, confess. And there they are, and they're stuck. And after a while, they just kind of accept mediocrity and don't grow. A lot of them bail. Just... I'm really afraid for the church, the result of this pandemic. I'm pretty well convinced, folks, the church is going to shrink about a third or so when the dust settles on it. That's the bad news. The good news is you may have a better church. Uh, that's what I'm praying for and hoping for. If you haven't read Irwin Lutzer's book, we will not be silent. Let me strongly recommend you do. Uh, boy, he does a good analysis of our culture right now. And I am deeply concerned that, uh, that church after church is going to start caving to this whole woke movement. And uh, out of some misguided efforts, I have no idea what they are, but not a healthy thing. But here, here's what I want to really present to you, people. That's not the primary struggle. If I tempt you, you know it. If I accuse you, you'll probably know it. If I deceive you, you don't know it. And if you know it, you're not deceived anymore. When Scripture says that he's deceived the whole world, I take that literally. I think that's true. That's why I think the primary issue is if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. When you put on the armor of God, you gird your loins with truth. The church is a pillar in support of truth. And so if we stop proclaiming truth in the midst of this woke movement, we're no longer functioning like the church. You lost the battle, folks. You gave up. It's funny. I was down at uh, Booksellers Convention, Spanish House, editorial Udalet, a few years back, and I was talking to pastors during the thing. Peter Wagner was sitting in front of me. I said, what is, it, what is God more concerned about in the church? Church purity or church growth? And Peter blurted out loud, church growth. I said, well, Peter, I guess I should suspect that from you. I said, Mr. Church Growth, I said, however, I disagree. I think it's church purity. And the reason I believe that is because I think it's an essential prerequisite for church growth. It's not that I'm not concerned about church growth, folks. But who shall approach God? Clean hands, pure hearts, right? And I don't think God can work through a dirty vessel. And so if we're not right ourselves with God, we're powerless to help others. And so it begins, judgment begins where? Household of God. It really begins with us. That's why summer before last, you know, when I just saw the, who knows what was coming down the pike. I mean, still who knows what's coming down the pike in the years ahead. I said, uh, but I said, what can I do about it? What can I do the little ministry I got? And uh, I had written this book, Restored, uh, a few years back, actually. Some were asking, give a kind of a nice short book explanation of what the steps to freedom are. It's a repentance process. 
And uh, so I did, and I gave it to them. Well, they had any means to distribute it, so they gave it back. C3 Resources and E3 Ministries, good group. So I got it back, so it's mine. I can give it away. So I gave it away. And uh, I just told, you know, the world, it's yours. You can translate it in the language you want to. You can download it. In fact, right now, there's a little handout there that you've got on it. You can, I told Bobby at lunch today, I said, you can have that as one of your free give outs. And uh, it's a repentance process. And, uh, and it's yours. You can use it in your church. You can copy it, run it off. You can translate it to another language. Go for it. And, uh, and I feel strongly about that because I think with, uh, with the kind of conflicts that we're having today, it's easy how we want to go out and take on the enemy or something like it there. But to be honest with you, I think the only answer is, is for us to get out of our lethargy and to truly repent ourselves. I think it has to begin with us. You can't help somebody else if you haven't helped yourself first. So love your neighbors yourself. That's not being selfish. That's going to make sure if I want to help somebody, I've got to help myself first. I've got to learn myself first. I've got to grow myself first. I've got to get rid of my own garbage before I can help somebody get rid of their garbage. And I deeply believe that. And um, don't try it otherwise, by the way. Well, let me move on because I want you to see something. Just as an illustration that you may not necessarily see in your English Bible. By the way, if you haven't read anything by Clint Arnold, Ephesians, Power and Magic, um, Colossians, Syncretism, uh, he's got another book out. It was just really, really good stuff. Clint crossed over with me at Talbot School of Theology. In fact, I think he took a class from me and finished his Master's of Theology. Went over, studied, uh, with I. Howard Marshall, probably the most preeminent New Testament theologian of his day in Aberdeen, Scotland. For some reason, this in innocent Mennonite guy out of Bakersfield <laughs> chose to identify the principalities and powers in Ephesians and Colossians. Surely the most scholarly stuff that exists out there from the reference. He was really one of the first to just bring to attention to the church that Gnosticism was not a problem in the first century. Didn't even start till the second century. What he pointed out very clearly was it was occultism. It had invaded, you know, the whole Jewish empire and the culture of that day. I mean, somehow or another, that's going to affect your worldview, especially as you read scripture. Surely affects mine. But let me bring out one particular aspect of that. And uh, when you look at Jesus' high priestly prayer, you really get, I think, an impression from God himself as to what it is that we are facing here today. If you want to know what God's take is upon the world here today, just go back to the high priestly prayer in John 17. I ask not that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. How? Sanctify them in thy word. That word is truth. There's your answer. You don't overcome the father of lies by research and reasoning, by revelation. You've got to know the truth. You don't have to know all the lies. What you got to know is the truth. And um, so, look at one particular passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 6 through 8. It's in your handout there if you want to look at it. Yet we do not speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers. Now, if you just read that from your Western worldview, who are the rulers? I mean, wouldn't you kind of naturally think presidents, governments, that kind of thing? I mean, that's how we would kind of naturally think. What if I told you the word there is archonton, archon, archontes? Archon. Spiritual. These are spiritual forces. Spiritual rulers. Same word used as Satan, only this is plural. And uh, that's why I would submit to Clint Hartle just doing some you know, the best scholarly work I know of and, and looking at the uses of these words at that time in Christ. Now, that totally changes your perspective on this particular passage um, because you would kind of think, well, it would be the high priest and, you know, the Pharisees of that day and whatever, but of this age who are passing away. And passing away is not dying. If you look up that word, it's used in 1524. It means destroyed or abolished. 
the destruction, essentially, of the kingdom of darkness, eventually. But we speak God's wisdom, ready, in a mystery. Now, you know a mystery. It's not mysterious. It's something that hasn't been previously revealed. And what's he actually talking about here? What had not been previously revealed is twofold. One, the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile. That was never foretold in the Old Testament. But the second part that was never foretold was the death and crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. Now you can go back and look at certain passages that seemingly, like Psalm 22 and other places like that, clearly you can see it looking backwards, but they did not have that at the time. He said, in mystery, which is the hidden wisdom, which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of these rulers, the demonic hierarchy, of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't know it. And you know what some? Disciples didn't know it. Been watching The Chosen? Any of you? It's amazing, isn't it? You know, I, I love the depiction of how they just struggled. What are we going to do next? I don't know. <laughs> What's he going to do now? <laughs> just keep following him. And, uh, it's, it's a fascinating rendition that he does of that. I think it's kind of interesting showing they're really common people, just like you and I struggle with the same beliefs and non-beliefs. But, but uh, just, just think about this here for a moment. Uh, if they had known that, they wouldn't have crucified Christ. But Jesus comes on the scene and says the kingdom of God is at hand. He's the God of this world. So what's he logically going to do? Well, let's take him out. He's a threat to our kingdom. But unfortunately, they played right in the hand of God. They crucified him, but he was resurrected. And that was the end of their, their rule, if you would have it. <clears throat> they would not have crucified God if they'd known that. Now, I bring this out to point to, uh, hopefully, more of a practical, big, bigger picture if I can. Uh, did they, at that time, did the rulers of the Sanhedrin at that time know they were being deceived? No, I don't think they did, no. I think one of the more interesting passages of Scripture, in John chapter 8, where he talks about, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. A few verses later, he says in verse 44, to the rulers at that time, the human rulers at that time, Sanhedrin probably, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, I don't believe that Jesus is speaking in hyperbole here. I think he's telling us the truth. You are of your father, the devil. Did they know that? No, I don't think they knew that. No, these were Jerusalem insiders. You with me? They were going to keep their position, comfortable as it was. Now, if that was the only passage alone, I wouldn't have much to stand upon. But... <clears throat> Look at Judas, one of the twelve. Well, he was a thief. That's true, and that's probably what made him vulnerable. But it was Satan who filled the heart of Judas to betray Christ. Did Judas know that? I don't think so. I think he'd been following Jesus wrong. I think he was doing what a lot of others wanted him to do, to establish God's kingdom here on earth. The truth of the matter is, it was Satan who filled his heart. When he realized what he'd done, he went out and hung himself. So he did have a conscience, apparently. But, and uh, look at 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1. Interesting to me. That Satan had put in the heart of David. Here's a man who had a whole heart for God. Put in the heart of David to, be, uh, to number the troops. Now you just think about that for a moment. What's wrong with that? 
Wouldn't you like to know how many people we have in your army? You think our government knows right now? They want to lose a few, apparently. <laughs> and, uh, but the captain of his guard knew it was wrong, and he said to him, Why are you bringing this sin upon us? Now think for a moment. This is David, who had a whole heart for God. This is David, who would write in Psalm 33, that a horse was a false hope for victory. It was David who slew Goliath. He knew God would fight for him. But you take somebody like David, who had a whole heart for God, the devil's not going to come along and suggest that he sacrifices babies. That's not going to happen. He would know where that's from and would dismiss it immediately. But take somebody like David, somebody who is a spiritual leader, and get him to start relying more on his own resources instead of God's. That's how subtle this is, people. You think that's a problem in our churches today? We count the cost, we figure out what it would take, and we see how much money we got, we have stewards to drive, see if we have enough money to do it. Are we really relying upon God? And uh, you're still left with the question, how did Satan do this? How did he put it in the heart of David, who had a whole heart for God? Well, these are David's thoughts, or at least he thought they were. There's the deception. Where'd that thought come from? Now, look at Acts chapter 5. Here's the early church. Just bearing fruit all over the place, people sharing everything in common. And you get to Acts chapter 5. And you read about Ananias and Sapphira. Let me read it to you. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And God struck him dead. Now you probably agree with me, folks. What was his great sin? He only gave half to the church. Don't you wish your people would sin that bad? Probably have a revival in six months. No, that wasn't the sin. The sin was he gave half, allowing the people to think it was all. Well, now there's a capital offense if there ever was one. Haven't you wondered about that? A little severe, isn't it? And then his wife comes along, same thing happened. Now, personally, I believe they were believers. Let me give you a couple quotes. F.F. Bruce, pretty well known, wrote that Ananias and Sapphira were believers. Here's another theologian who wrote that Ananias was a Jewish Christian and commented, Satan has filled his heart. Ananias has lied to the Holy Spirit inasmuch as the Spirit is present in Peter. Hence, in the last resort, it is not simply two men who confront one another, but in them the Holy Spirit and Satan, whose instruments they are. What's the point? I think God knows what the primary battle is. If the enemy can get into your home, your life, your marriage, your family, your church, your ministry, without being detected and get you to believe a lie, he could exert some control over your life. He's the father of lies. Now, isn't that true? What if I shared something today, just off a little bit, about God or about yourself? So in other words, you believe something that wasn't true. Would that have some negative effect on your life? Yeah, it would. Maybe not major. Maybe a fun little thing. That's how subtle this stuff is. <laughs> if you're deceived, you don't know it. That's the only anecdote to that is you've got to know the truth. So when the lie comes, it's evident to you. Just that's not true. And... Uh, and we're going to see how this plays out in terms of mental health, emotional health, as we go through this in a few minutes. So give me some time here. And um, Satan, if you look at your outline here for a moment, is called the archon, the ruler of this world. The whole spiritual realm that he oversees are biblically, are actually Elohims. I know that may seem strange for you, but, but look it up, folks. I mean, God is Elohim as well. So is Satan. They're spirits, but there's only one eternal Jehovah God, uh, and all the others are created spirits, of course. But God, that's a common word for God our Father, Elohim. And, uh, but if you go through Scripture, there's two or three places where Satan is actually called Elohim. And uh, they're spirits, just kind of leave it at that. And uh, it's part of the heavenly host that was created 
before planet Earth as we know it. But there's several things we know about. Never ascribe to Satan the divine attributes of God. There's only one omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient God. There's only one Jehovah God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Just, just, just get that rule out. Never ascribe to Satan the attributes of God. Uh, and all these demonic rulers are facing an impending doom. They know that, by the way. They're not ignorant of that. They've been told that. And uh, their doom is coming. And they are involved in the everyday affairs of life. Now, see, if I was Satan and I wanted to somehow or another stand up against you know, the kingdom of God, what would I do? Well, frankly, I think I know what he's doing. My first and most pervasive thing would be to divide the mind. We are clearly told, 1 Timothy 4.1, in latter days people will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceiving spirits. It's happening right now all over the world. Because a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Then I try to divide your marriage, because the house divided itself can't stand. Then I try to divide the church, because united we stand, but divided we fall. But frankly, here in Franklin, Brentwood areas, all our Christians are single-minded, all our marriages are one in Christ, and the church is just one big happy family working together in unity. Sobering, isn't it? This is a huge church, by the way. Brentwood Baptist. 6,000 people, something like that. What's so sad, what the Lord is praying for, that we would all be one, because when we're divided, we have no clout. 6,000 people here is less than 1% of the city. 1% has no clout in politics. If, however, you were to unite all the believers in this area, we would be about 20-25%. They'd have to listen to you. But we can't do that. We can't collectively go to our city councils and our boards and say. And right now, thanks to a couple of presidents we've had, the gay community has more political clout than the whole evangelical community has combined. You don't think that's true? They do. They're pulling the agenda right now, and they're only 3%. But they don't want you to know it's 3%, do they? They want you to think it's the majority. That's the strategy. And uh, so what does the Lord pray for? That we would all be one. That we'd be all unified in Christ. That we'd be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit, for that matter. And uh, so kind of conclude this part of it. Irenaeus quote from Against Heresies, to me, sums it up pretty well. The devil, however, as he is the apostate angel, can only go to this length as he did at the beginning to deceive and lead astray the mind of men into disobeying the commandments of God and gradually to darken their hearts. And, uh, <clears throat> and it's been my experience that what Paul has warned us against, I mean, even the language, the spirit explicitly says, there's not another parallel passage like that anywhere in the New Testament that I know of. It's like, gong, 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 don't miss this. And I'm here to tell you right now, that's happening all over the world. People are paying attention to deceiving spirits. Some of them think it's God guiding them. In fact, a lot of them do, for that matter. And, uh, you know, that was so new to me when I first went to seminary to teach. I mean, I would have no idea. I remember a guy in my church when I was my first pastorate come up to me one day and said, you know, pastor, I got this voice in my head. Really? <laughs> you know, truth is, man, he was a pain in the neck to us, his family and his marriage. <laughs> and now I look back, that's really sad, folks. I, not only didn't I know what that was, had I known, I wouldn't have known what to do about it. So I watched his marriage fall apart and the family fall apart and they left the church. Now I say, Sam, let's sit down and talk. I can help you with that. And I say that with confidence. I can help you get out of this. We can get rid of that voice in your head. I'm going to explain that a little bit later on. Uh, but we have been so mesmerized by the scientific community, it wants to explain that another way. 
I'm going to come back to that uh, tomorrow morning and try to explain that more fully to you so that you have an adequate biblical answer and justification why I'm saying what I've just said there. People all over this world right now are just struggling with their thoughts. They have no mental peace. And, and those kind of, quote, psychological problems are just threatening the church right now. You know how many people are taking medication for depression and anxiety disorders in your churches? Don't ask, you'll be shocked. I remember several years ago when I realized the people that I was trying to help, uh, most of their problems originated when they were young. So I think it was the third book I did called Seduction of Our Children. We went out and researched uh, Christian schools. We personally chose the most conservative ones we could find. Uh, youth groups in very conservative churches, uh, a Grace Brethren School church where you had to have a letter from your pastor to attend. It's not exactly a missionary school. And, uh, and we researched the data and it was like, oh my gosh, 71% said they're hearing voices like there's a subconscious self talking to them. If they played the game like Dungeons and Dragons, 43% had an impulse to thoughts to kill people, like grab a knife and stab somebody. I'm telling you, when I showed it to the principal of the school, I thought he was going to have a heart attack. He just, you know, and he just dismissed it. And, um, and uh, the book went out of print. And so publisher asked me, would you like to redo the research? Now, all of that was done before smartphones. Where do you think we are today? So we started asking churches, would you like to do this the research? You know what we got? Half of them said no. So we didn't. Didn't want to do it. They didn't want to create the problem. So let's take a little break and we're going to come up and look at what is the foundation for discipleship? Keep this worldview in mind. But uh, Daryl, Fitzgerald, where'd Daryl? He's back there. I sent him there in front of the class. But it's... Uh, is going to share that on that section. What time do we come back? Quarter tail? 15 minutes. God bless you. See you in 15 minutes. Man, that was awesome stuff from Dr. Anderson. I hope that you enjoyed that. We got two more track sessions coming up from them, so that's going to be fantastic. So make sure you hit subscribe if you haven't already so that you can stay up to date when I release those new podcast episodes. One thing I love that Dr. Neal said was, if your worldview is not changing, you're not growing. That is so well said, and I believe that wholeheartedly. So I just want to ask you to please continue to come back to discipleship.org or the collective or the podcast show so that you can continue to broaden your horizons, learn more about disciple making, and let your worldview be changed so that you will continue to grow. All right. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode.